All right, we may as well um, go ahead and get started. Um, so we have quite a lot of speakers today and a lot of material to go over. It's very exciting talking about Kuwait's urbanization, transport, and use of public space. Um, my name is Courtney Freer. I'm an assistant professorial research fellow at LSE's Middle East Center um, and working with the Kuwait program. So I've worked with um, all of my colleagues here today on, on their projects relating to, to Kuwait. Uh, so we have two different projects we're gonna be talking about, one focused on transport and the other focused on public space. And we'll have uh, the speakers from each speak for about probably 20 minutes for each project. Um, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. Um, and if you'd like to ask a question, just type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. And then uh, I can address those questions to the speakers once they're finished speaking. Um, the event is being recorded and is also being live streamed on Facebook. Um, it will be then converted into a podcast so you can listen to it over and over. Um, and if you want to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so for the first project, um, Adil Mohammed has been leading an LSE Kuwait program uh, research project entitled Towards an Equitable Transport System in Kuwait. And Reem Al-Fahed has, uh, has worked as a researcher on that project. Um, Adil Mohammed is a visiting postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Transport Studies at the University of Leeds. Adil previously worked as a research officer at LSE Cities on projects related to mapping and analyzing the spatial and temporal dynamics of urban expansion and transport mobility across Asia and Africa. Rima Fahad holds an MSc in City Design and Social Science from the London School of Economics and a BA in Public Policy Studies from Duke University. She's most interested in the cultural and social dynamics of inclusion, particularly as they relate to urban spaces. And she previously worked with Kantar Public in London and the Cultural Secretariat of Medellin, Colombia. Outside of academic research, she's working on an audio documentary which focuses on globalized gentrification. Um, so that's the first project. The second project, uh, has been led by Alexandra Gomez and Asila Ragam, and they've been working on another Kuwait program uh, research project looking at public space in Kuwait. Sharif Al-Shalfan has also been a key consultant on this project and we'll give her input as well. Um, Alexandra Gomez is a research officer at LSE Cities, where she is responsible for, for coordinating the center's socio-spatial analysis across a range of projects, focusing on urban studies, comparative analysis, urban inequalities, public space, and urban walkability experience across the different scales of analysis and within different geographies from Europe to the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. Alex teaches at UCL's Bartlett School of Planning, where she just recently submitted her PhD. Um, Asila Ragam is Associate Professor of Architecture, Vice Dean for Academic Affairs, Research, and Graduate Studies, and Director of the Architecture Graduate Program at Kuwait University's College of Architecture. She's an award-winning author with published research on Kuwait's built environment and was a research fellow and lecturer at École Nationale Supérieure de architecture in Paris. So my French is very good. Um, she works as an architecture and planning consultant and is a member of the Technical Advisory Committee on Kuwait's Private University Council. And finally, uh, Sharif Al-Shafan is an architect, urban researcher, and educator. She's part of a team of experts developing housing and urban policy recommendations at the Kuwait Foundation for the Advancement of Sciences. She also works as a consultant on urban development at the World Bank and teaches periodically at Kuwait University in the College of Architecture. Her work has been published by City, LSE Cities, the LSE Kuwait Program, and the Barcelona Center for International Affairs. So we have a fantastic group of researchers here um, to talk about these topics. And we will start with the first project with uh, Rima Fahad speaking about uh, public transport in Kuwait. Thanks so much, Courtney. Um, hi, everyone. It's really good to be here. Uh, I'll just jump right in. Okay, can everyone see that? Okay, okay. 
So um, Adil and I wanted to explore what the social and cultural context of transport accessibility in Kuwait. And particularly, we wanted to understand transportation beyond the literal lens of transport links and trying to understand what goes on and motivates transport behavior at a social and cultural level. Okay, so how do I? Okay, so the objectives are of our project, the scope of it was essentially to explore both the spatial access, but then also to explore, I'm figuring out the zoom, sorry, <laughs> to explore the spatial access, but also mode choice. But essentially what we wanted to focus on, uh, okay, the main part we wanted to focus on was the non-spatial factors, i.e. the social and cultural uh, factors that happen beyond uh, the mode choice. And so Kuwait in particular poses a particular set of challenges. And uh, I'm aware that some people in the audience may be more aware about Kuwait than others. And so, but if I overlook anything, feel free to ask in the question and answer. And so uh, Kuwait had in the 19, from had an incredibly fast urban expansion. So as you can see, 1951 and to around now to um, Kuwait expanded in terms of the urban living area an incredible amount and largely because of the advent of oil. And uh, as you can see here, the Kuwaiti population became very spread out. But while the population increased, there has been an incredible uh, de-densification of the population. And so as you can see, the left side is a Kuwaiti population. Um, they no longer lived in dense, intimate areas, but rather incredibly, uh, in, in terms of sprawl, more of a sprawl. And so uh, something that we analyzed is the accessibility to bus stops. And so when people are living so far apart, how, what does that mean for, for public transportation? Um, and so the red represents beyond two kilometers and the green, the darkest green is, is within 250 meters, which is perhaps a more reasonable amount of space to walk. And as you can see, and Adil can talk more about this in the, in the Q and A is the Kuwaiti population is particularly within Kuwaiti neighborhoods, um, have to walk a lot more to get to bus stops. And how else are they moving if not by buses? And the reality is Kuwait has relied a lot on highways. And so with the rapid expansion, there was also the desire to live in big modern villas. Um, and there was this new glorification of cars that was like, okay, cars are the future. So there was a massive investment in road expansion. And of course, as population increased, car ownership increased and road expansion increased. But there is a limitation to this where there's only so much uh, growth that roads can have, which is space is finite, whereas the population and the demand continues to grow. And so we have a situation where uh, the Kuwaiti population is mainly dependent on private vehicles. And then the non-Kuwaiti population, as you can see, has a wide range of um, transportation modes. And one important thing to, to mention here is Kuwait has a particular law where in, as an expat, in order to have a driver's license, you need to meet a particular set of requirements. And 
part of that is a 650 KD salary, which is far above the minimum wage, which is around 180 KD. And uh, you need a managerial position and you also need uh, a university degree. And so many of the expat population would of course prefer to use cars because as you can see, the city is built for cars. Uh, they are forced to uh, look for alternate transport. And there's very little investment in making these uh, efficient or accessible, which we will discuss. But what we sought to do is really try to understand what is driving this behavior beyond simply the access. And so Kuwait uh, has these, this particular situation that I mentioned, but also um, there's this resident, some factors to take into consideration when looking, when going to this research is the residential stratification. So as we said, the Kuwaiti population and the non-Kuwaiti population tend to live far apart. The populations are quite isolated. Um, and so there are several enclaves of different population groups that live separate. And so let's say if you're a young man who works as a day laborer, you're gonna probably live in a specific neighborhood amongst other young single men. And there's also a drastic income inequality. And so something that's really interesting about Kuwait is it has 69% um, of the population is actually non-Kuwaiti. And with the advent of oil, there was an incredible uh, influx of blue collar labor, labor and the service industry. And the thing that makes it different in some ways that, than the kind of migration or similar as well to the migration in Europe and the US is uh, in order to reach places like Europe and the US, you already need to be have a certain amount of privilege within your nation state in order to access the kind of barriers that um, that allow you to arrive there. In Kuwait, Kuwait has a much different range. Um, it has a much wider range of immigrants. And so there are people who uh, don't come from very uh, educated backgrounds and they come from low-income backgrounds within their communities and they depend on remittances from their uh, service jobs here to send to their countries. And so there is drastic income inequality that is reflected in the different residential enclaves. And something important to mention is that there's a strong cultural legacy um, that remains despite the rapid growth. And so even though Kuwait, as we saw in the first image, rapidly expanded, the reality is um, for any civilization, the, it's gonna be, take a much longer time for the culture to advance as quickly. And so there's a very present tradition. And this is why qualitative research is really important because you need to begin to capture all these people and try to understand what's going on that is driving behavior beyond simply uh, what people have access to. And so, um, and there's the potential for many people to be overlooked. And so we, we put out a social media campaign and we sought out to have different focus groups and a public discussion. And uh, what we ended up having is four focus groups and with 10 to 12 people and one public discussion that was open. These were mixed between Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis. We had a specific, we also had a specific only Kuwaiti group and a specific non-Kuwaiti group. And something that was really interesting and that we discovered was that 
there was a need to understand to specifically the gender experience um, because that was something, a very salient issue. Uh, but within the focus groups, a lot of that was kind of shut down by uh, louder voices. And so we supplemented the research with six in-depth interviews. So three female domestic workers, um, Indian, Ethiopian, and Filipina of different ages, one foreign middle income retail worker uh, who works in the avenues, and then two uh, Kuwaiti women of different ages, uh, one in their 50s and one in their 20s. And of course, uh, qualitative research has many limitations because it is limited, because it is uh, not meant to be representative, but it's important in how it provides insights. And so the, what I mentioned is not going to represent all domestic workers or all Kuwaitis, but it will give uh, ideas. And so the findings. So uh, in transport research, there's a tendency to disaggregate female and male behavior. But in the particular Kuwaiti context, we found it important to disaggregate it further along uh, income and citizenship lines, because we found that that largely influences how people move around. And so um, for the first group, which is probably the hardest, uh, and I'm going to focus on gender mainly, um, so female writers, and partly because Kuwait, for many of you who are aware of what's happening, Kuwait has had quite an interesting year when it comes to gender. There have been a lot of social media campaigns about harassment, et cetera. So, so because a lot of this research was focused on, on female access, uh, I thought I would make that the focus for this particular part of the presentation. So the first group of people is um, low income foreign nationals. So they're domestic workers, so essentially mates. And Kuwait has about 1.3 million citizens and 660,000 domestic workers. This is from um, a 2015 study. And that means there's one domestic worker for every two Kuwaiti citizens. And accessibility for these domestic workers is very difficult because oftentimes they live with their Kuwaiti families. Um, they're legally supposed to have a day off, but many of them do not. Uh, and or and sometimes they don't even choose to because they are so isolated within their homes. They, if they choose to, let's say, go to the city center, um, the only way if the family does not have a driver to access the city is through taxi. And because of their their income is often a whole, only around 120 KD, depending on their nationality, which is less than the minimum wage, they can end up spending up to 15% of their income just on taxis um, on a monthly basis. And so that is not sustainable. And so they end up being stuck in their homes, both for uh, literal money and then also because uh, of the massive cultural barrier. And so a lot of these women are quite young. They, some of the ones I interviewed were actually older, like 40 years old and et cetera. And they've been working with families for 16 years, but the tendency is for a lot of them to come really young to Kuwait and they don't necessarily speak English really well or Arabic really well. And they find it intimidating to go and actually access their city and their needs and they become um, relegated into their, their, their small spaces. Um, the next group is middle income for nationals. And so this has a lot more to do like retail workers. Um, and there's a wide range of nationalities. So a lot of these women, they suffer a lot from uh, the license law. So a lot of them say they would much prefer 
to drive on their own, but because a lot of them might not have university degrees or managerial positions, they can't access a license and therefore have to rely on public transportation or informal transport, which makes them feel sometimes incredibly unsafe. So many of them have expressed a very common uh, collision with sexual harassment and lots of cultural negotiations within the public space. So a lot of them talk about when they are in the buses, they feel that because of the range of different nationalities of men particularly, they always have to be on edge uh, in terms of how these men are gonna be treating them, staring at them. And, and a lot of these women uh, feel they can't approach any authority because they feel that they are interchangeable. And so if they go up to the police uh, and say, I was sexually harassed, they believe that it will only be a reason for them to be deported. And so they end up silencing themselves and uh, end up the cycle continues and they are captive riders because they have no other option. And so they continue to use this transport despite the fact that they do not feel safe. The next group is um, high income foreign nationals. So like Western, Lebanese, and I use this picture, but I don't, I don't wanna assume that this is just because they're dressed that way, they're Western, they could be Kuwaiti, but this is just um, for visual representation. Um, but uh, for a lot of these women, they use private cars, um, but it's interesting because for many of them, if they do not have kids, they are sometimes denied a license because it, they, it, because they are told it does not demonstrate a need. And so many women who are do not have kids are sometimes disadvantaged if they do not have, for getting a license. And a lot of these same women also, um, they, uh, yeah, and so, and so another thing is they also do not feel necessarily very safe walking around. They rely mainly on taxis and uh, mainly with applications like Karim, um, and they say that it's very hard to access information about buses. Um, and I can go into more detail, but I'm very conscious of time. So if you have specific questions, we can go uh, into it in the question and answer. And lastly, um, and this one is really fascinating, is the Kuwaiti nationals, both middle income and high income. And so Kuwaitis, many factors drive their behavior in terms of not using buses. And so, like I said, there's a very strong cultural legacy. And actually many women uh, expressed that they would they feel, felt they would bring shame to the family if they used the buses. And even some men in the focus groups talked about how uh, it was the duty of the father or the uncle or the brother to provide uh, mobility for their daughters. And if they don't, then it reflects poorly on them. And so it creates this stigma. And, and then also for, for some women who, who come from our conservative families, they talked about how there is, they feel that there's this need for uh, their, their family to know where they are, which is why they, there's pressure to use, um, to use drivers, et cetera, rather than their own transport. And at the same time, for some other women, they really rely on their cars for their private space. And so oftentimes for them, the car is the only place where they feel that they have privacy, autonomy, independence. Many women said that their car is their like favorite place in Kuwait. And, and that's because they can, they're, they don't have to worry about 
um, like they, it's just their space and they can, um, but a very important thing, and I think the most salient thing to consider is many women express that uh, they felt that the, the public space is often male dominated and that women are often seen as, feel as though they're visitors. And so they feel, and this, this in, has a lot to do with access because what does it mean for a woman to mitigate where she can go because she feels that once she gets there, she's going to be washed a certain way or uh, evaluated a certain way or made to feel unsafe. And so uh, essentially the main explanatory social and cultural structures that drive the behavior that we found that come from the social and cultural level are this dominantly male public culture. And so that affected both the expatriate woman and the Kuwaiti woman because the expatriate woman talked about fear of sexual harassment, et cetera. And then the Kuwaiti woman um, expressed this feeling of being watched. And then there's this dominant local versus expatriate divide. Um, and many people who research the Gulf talk about how expatriates in particular are uh, excluded in two ways, like both actively because of these different enclaves, like residential enclaves and transportation, but also passively through social processes, like being excluded from civic participation, etc. And so this largely dominates why people move around the way they do. Thirdly, uh, a tr tradition as an organizer of society. And so the fact that many people still expressed this feeling that as a woman, it would like it's still like and fathers express that they wouldn't let their daughters ride the buses um, says that there is still this present feeling that there is a strong tradition that can affect why people would decide to take a bus or not. And lastly, and this is perhaps the most, uh, even though it might be the most obvious for some, it's actually one of the strongest. So, because it reinforces the other three. So the cars as a culture of status, entertainment and class. And so uh, the reason it's important is because it makes the other three things a lot stronger. So in terms of uh, male public culture, cars as a status ends up being, uh, the ends up indicating that uh, relating to masculinity. So your car, your presence becomes a part of your identity and also the space in which you have it and how it becomes a male dominant space. Um, the expatriate divide and dominant divide. And so it creates this haves and haves nots um, and this potential access into the mainstream. And uh, lastly, as a tradition as an organizer society. So owning a car becomes also this signifier of like participation in society and I can provide, et cetera. And, and yeah, and so uh, that was a lot of information and I feel like could have gone much deeper in all of it, but I guess that's what also question and answers are for. So thank you all. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing more. Fantastic, thank you so much. Um, and I wanted to give uh, Adil Mohammed, who is also working on this project, a couple of minutes um, just to comment on, on other findings and, and on your presentation. Um, so Adil. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Reem. Uh, I think yeah, you presented quite well about our work and uh, especially the eye-catching things in the presentation and our work were first like Kuwait has like very high level of car ownership when we compare it that uh, the non-residents and non-nationals 
are more likely to not own or drive a car. So in that way, car ownership level is really high. Currently, it's around 400 cars per thousand population, but it seems much more higher when we only consider the QAT population as well. And then, uh, yeah, this is a very interesting thing that the Asian uh, or Middle Eastern context where male-dominated public culture means that women uh, are like facing more uh, problems uh, related to accessibility and mobility. And they are more uh, like reliant on car mobility because of uh, the male-dominated public culture, which puts them at a significantly higher disadvantage. And then there is a nationality divide as well. So it's like uh, the non-nationals, they, they uh, have further higher accessibility constraints. So it means that if uh, somebody is female and a non-national, then the accessibility, they will be the most uh, like uh, having experiencing the accessibility constraints in Kuwaiti society. And the spatial planning and the development of Kuwait is so that it's basically made for cars, which, which needs to be corrected. And this uh, this situation has been like more exposed by the current scenario of COVID nineteen. So so it's like these accessibility constraints have been multiplied with the current situation. So a good, efficient, and equitable public transport system is a way forward for today. Great. I think um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I just finished, yeah. Okay. All right, thank you so much. And we'll, we'll come back to this, all of these topics later in the Q&A. Um, but now we're going to move on to a different but related topic um, of public space in Kuwait. And I believe uh, Asil will, will start the presentation. So thank you uh, everyone for joining us today and thank you to Courtney for her introduction and the LSE Middle East Program for supporting our research. Uh, I will uh, just introduce the, the team that conducted the study. It consisted of urban planners and architects, Alexander Gomez and Sharifa Shelfan and myself, and researchers from the architecture graduate program at Kuwait University, Ala Fuda and Nur Huda Sharif, who helped in data collection. Uh, Alex, next, please. So we completed a year-long study on public space in two neighborhoods in Kuwait, and the findings are now published as a policy paper by the LSE Middle East program. Uh, just wanted to add a caveat. We finished our study just before the COVID-19 pandemic, but we did reflect on the use of public space during this period in a blog post published in the LSE Middle East website. Um, so while this project is now complete, we are now currently finalizing a card game. We have uh, some images uh, on the slide here uh, for you to, to see. And that card game is a participatory planning tool uh, targeting a younger audience and decision makers with the help of another talented architect planner, Tanishri Agrawal. And we'll be speaking more about the card game in more details at an upcoming seminar on June 7th. Next, please. Uh, I think Reem did a fantastic job in introducing the context, but for those who are not familiar with the context of our study, the city-state of Kuwait is a constitutional emirate with a land area of about 17,400 square kilometers and a population of around 4.8 million, from which two-thirds are non-Kuwaitis. This population is growing rapidly, and according to the UN, it is expected to increase by 50% in 2100. And so accommodating this growth through sustainable ur urban development has been and will continue to be a challenge for the state. 
And since the discovery of oil in 1938, the city has rapidly expanded, as you can see from the slides. It is supported by a road a system that encircles suburban residential neighborhoods and other monofunctionally zoned districts. Next, please. Uh, you've seen the slide earlier, but most non-Kuwaitis live in high-density clusters and depend on public transport for movement, while most Kuwaitis live in large single-family homes and depend on private vehicles for their day-to-day -day activities. Single land use urban development together with climatically unfit design guidelines, culturally driven housing preferences, inefficient public transport, and subsidized resources have created car-dependent sprawl and poor pedestrian infrastructure. Public space, an important component in vibrant cities, is missing in this context. Today, more than ever, we must uh, strike a balance between the public and private realms in the design and planning of our cities. And as we've seen during this pandemic, public space played an important role during lockdown with many residents taking to the streets to walk and exercise. And in general, it became a space of leisure. So this shift in social behavior has the potential to nurture a sense of neighborhood belonging and without public spaces, some have argued, we will drift into a privatized and polarized society with all of its problems. Still the continued expansion of road networks to accommodate the glut of private vehicle use was one of our points of departure. The research provided findings that would guide the design and planning of walkable neighborhoods arriving at these findings through not unlike uh, Reem and Adil's uh, research project, uh, a qualitative policy-oriented approach that is both environmentally and socially sustainable and one that would lead to healthier behavior, which is really our aim. Next, please. Well, broadly speaking, public, public space, we all know, is a very well-researched uh, in the urban studies field. We found lit limited data on the topic in Kuwait. Uh, despite its, of course, importance on people's well-being and their, and their quality of life indicators that determine the success of public space from a qualitative human-centered approach has received little research attention. In general, the absence of public space policy papers directly impacts the advancement of user-centered planning and practice in Kuwait. And so we worked from there, and more specifically, we, con we con concentrated on three knowledge gaps that were addressed in our investigation. The first tackled the limited information on street level urban design characteristics, including user-centered surveys and granular data for residential neighborhoods in Kuwait. The second filled in a methodological gap in the analysis of public space. And finally, the third addressed the limited research in public space policy and management. So this knowledge production focuses on user experience and placemaking that engages the social dimension of formal and informal patterns of public space use at the different scales of the city. So at the micro scale where appropriation acts as a mode of resistance, submission or compliance, and at the macro scale where structural indicators might trigger more complex modes of urban negotiations. Next, please. We used a comparative case study method to unpack these ideas and we tested them out on two local streets and residential neighborhoods in Kuwait, uh, in, uh, 4th Street Qurtuba and Al Dimna Street in Samia. We selected Qurtuba and Samia because they are fundamentally different. Qurtuba is a residential neighborhood with suburban characteristics, serving a mostly Kuwaiti community with schools, co-ops and other social amenities. Samia is a mixed land use medium density neighborhood with a variety of commercial and residential buildings types and social amenities that serve both Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis. But despite these differences, these neighborhoods follow the same public space planning regulations that include street widths, public setbacks and road classifications. 
So if our choice of the neighborhoods were based on typological differences, the selection of 4th Street and El Dimna Street was based on similarities in their functional classification. Both are collector roads with low to moderate capacity and serve to move traffic from local streets to arterial, arterial roads. Both, um, both provide vehicular and pedestrian access to open public space. In the case of Qurtuba, as you'll notice, an empty plot that is used by residents as a makeshift playground, and in Salmiya, a small neighborhood park. And these spaces serve as destination points or paths to other places because of their centrality within these blocks. The selection of these case studies also brings into focus the unfulfilled potential of streets, which framed our research question, what are the planning, urban design, and behavioral factors that contribute to public space use in Kuwait? Our underlying argument was that higher density, mixed-use development, and pedestrian-centered urban design will increase the use of public space in residential neighborhoods. Next, please. We addressed our research question by analyzing users' behavioral patterns and responses to survey questions in warmer and cooler seasons. We also extensively surveyed and mapped the sites. For example, in Salmiya's El Dimna Street, a total of 101 public space users were surveyed and 32 in 4th Street, uh, Qurtuba. We analyzed the collected data for patterns and outliers using statistical and thematic classifications, as well as GIS mapping. Uh, the institute surveys provided valuable and site-specific information, including socio-demographic data, the time spent in these selected areas, and users' opinion on the quality and characteristics of these locations. Uh, very important granular data that can help us, in fact, uh, design public space in Kuwait. Of course, Alex will go into all of this in more detail. Uh, and we certainly took into account the disparity between Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis in the way these sites were occupied drawing links between public space use and contentious terms such as citizenship and broader themes such as inclusion and exclusion in the design of public space, not unlike the work that uh, Reem and Adil are working on. Of course, there are multiple factors at play, ones that are unique to Kuwait. We are also very aware that mixed-use development alone will not immediately produce vibrant communities without the necessary public infrastructure, so I think our research aligns in that sense. Uh, nonetheless, our goal is to provide evidence-based recommendations that would encourage diversity and promote equitable use of public space. Next, please. The site-specific information was, was aggregated by surveys developed by the Young Gale Institute. Uh, a total of seven work, different worksheets were used, each tackling different aspects of site serving and user behavior. Those were administered by our researchers in both cooler and warmer seasons and supplemented by observation, surveying, note-taking, photography, and videography, all of which uncovered the nuances of everyday life and user behavior in these locations. We were keen on using open source methods. The Jan Gale's uh, worksheets are all open source and have global reach, particularly ones that are easily replicated. And the reason why we did that is because we thought that it would help create a baseline and generate data that can be compared to other cities around the world. So before I hand over the conversation to Alex, I wanted to add uh, that our focus on the street and its unfulfilled potential is our attempt to bring attention to the public realm. The aim is to not only aggregate street level data that creates evidence-based policies adopted for planning and design guidelines, but we also wanted to highlight the importance of qualitative methods and knowledge production. We wanted to reimagine the planning of public space and residential neighborhoods with user experience as a starting point in the creation of more vibrant and equitable communities. And I'll turn now the conversation over to Alex. Thank you, Asil. Um, 
just to introduce you to our two case study areas. So this, this on your uh, left is uh, an overview of Salmia with higher densities. Uh, uh, buildings, also higher density population on the right side, Cortuba, uh, also in 3D. And you can see the location where our case, our researchers did uh, this analysis that Asil already described. Um, but I'm, I have divided my presentation into the three key findings that we found in this research. The first one tries to demystify the effect of local climate on public space use. We often hear in Kuwait in particular, but also in other cities in the Middle East, that the extreme temperatures in Kuwait are prohibitive and that climate restricts public space use. However, our observations demonstrated that excluding the extreme periods, weather did not seem to have a noticeable effect of, on the intensity of use, and that instead the social demographic and the type of activities that are offered in these neighborhoods are the deciding factors in the use of public space. As these graphics show throughout the cooler and warmer seasons, you can see um, uh, the warmer in yellows and the cooler in, in blues, the number of street users is not changing dramatically. And in Cortuba, we even found more users in the warmer season. The largest demographic, and I think supporting a bit of what Reem already said, the, last, the largest demographic group of users in public space were lower income non-QAT male workers, as you can see by the gender and age distribution in the graphics, though mostly with low level of permanence in public space. They, they were not staying long. We mostly found that people do not interact in the streets. Instead, streets are passageways or are the destination points for daily errands. They're used to go to bank, they're used to go for a dinner, car cleaning, good deliveries, construction activities, and mostly reached by car. In Salmia, due to its higher mixed use character, everyday activities as smoking or talking on the phone or playing and gathering are dominant, but mostly in the park area and in and around a few commercial pockets around the street. Even though the weather doesn't seem the key factor in public space use, it is still a challenge that must be addressed. And climate appropriate urban form and design can mitigate extreme conditions and physically promote more intense social use of urban space, as we will demonstrate in the next slides. Along with the, the question of the weather, we also analyzed urban elements and urban factors that somehow led, can lead to a better public space. And our analysis reveals that there are three significant factors to consider, but that they are highly interrelated, meaning that a successful public space improvement cannot be achieved with isolated measures. These are one, the impact of QAT, non-QAT, social demographics in planning and in residential communities. The second is the road network connectivity and individual and cultural behavior. And finally, the street level, microscale accessibility and urban design. Successful public space policies will not be possible unless planning institutions acknowledge this interdependency uh, of factors. Uh, while most non-QATs live, as uh, Reem and uh, Asil already mentioned, they live in high density clusters and depend on public transport, such as buses. And you can see the image of the on the left, uh, Salmia. Most QATs live in large villas and rely on private vehicles for their commute. And you can see the images on the right of Cortuba. The lower density residential neighborhoods, mostly single use, dominate the QAT landscape, incentivizing private car use and hindering walkability 
and socialization. Increasing densities, diversifying urban typologies and a multifunctional land use planning, along with a better public space design, is part of an alternative solution. However, updating streets layout for pedestrians and transport infrastructure to accommodate this increase is fundamental. These maps show the current situation. And in blue, you can see the differences between mixed use levels uh, between the two neighborhoods. While um, you can see 34% of the buildings in Salmiya present non-residential uses, that percentage is much lower in Cortuba with around 3%. And this has consequences into street life. And as we will see in the next slides. Along with the lack of mixed use and commercial activities, also the lack of lighting, shading elements, water fountains and more seating, together with inexisting public toilets, these all should be included in the, pub, in the planning of public space as they will help increase safety and they will help increase permanence in public space. We have noticed that many of the formal seating elements are not protected from the sun, and you can see the image on Salmia Park, leaving trees or planters to be used as elements to sit and gather. Also, water fountains were seen as elements that promote socialization, mostly due to queues formed around the few existing and working ones. At the same time, the annexation of pavements for car parking and private space use and private use with vegetation, planting and cluttering elements is a habit that breaks street connectivity and discourages people from walking while producing unsafe environments for those who have to step into the road to, av to avoid physical barriers. Our study showed that more than 40% of the street's length are fully obstructed to walking by car parking, while the remaining space is often lacking maintenance. Improving pedestrian infrastructure includes changing priorities from cars to pedestrians. The creation and maintenance of pavements, the addition of zebra crossings, the drop curbs, pedestrian traffic lights, wayfinding and speed limit signs are missing in both case studies and their surroundings. Car parking is, however, more than just a barrier. It's the dominant element in the Q8 streetscape. And these maps illustrate how dominant these are. They, you can see in blue formal and larger parking areas, and these maps show that these correspond to a fifth of the area in Salmia and a quarter of the area in Cortuba. In Cortuba, the proportion of parking areas already surpasses by 160% the total housing footprint. This without taking into account the more informal parking, housing, uh, parking happening in front of the houses. In Salmia, due to the urban layout and building footprint densities, tenant parking spaces are not always guaranteed. Those, those residents have to park their cars away from their homes and walk to these parking areas. This in contrasts with Cortuba, where cars are parked outside homeowners' property line on the public setback, meaning that Q80s, often Q80s, they don't have to walk much to reach their car. They're literally in front of your house. Our analysis showed that in, in Cortuba, almost 50% of the street walking movement was from people walking to and from their cars to their houses. So very little movement that it's not related to a car and house. Here,
here is an example of uh, the larger parking spaces in both neighborhoods. And here it's important to note that Q80s, 99% um, of the Q80s, as Reem uh, and Asil already showed, use private cars for commuting purposes, which compares with around 44 for non-Q80s. The current ratio between vehicle and people is already one vehicle per two persons. So if we continue adding streets and, and, and giving priority to the car, this ratio can even uh, go uh, beyond this value. So car use is an individual behavior, often associated, like Reem already said, with status and comfort. And this behavior will not change without strong interventions at different levels. Without accessible, reliable, and safe public transport, uh, again, supporting all that Reem and Asil already mentioned, uh, without conditions, walking conditions also, this situation will not, not persist. How can you access a bus stop? Uh, if you can't walk, if, and if you have to walk permanently in the street. Um, so, as you can see here, the map shows the inequality of access to the only existing public transport mode in Kuwait, the buses in the two neighborhoods. And you can see here with the blue triangles representing the bus stops and Cortuba, which is dominantly Kuwait neighborhood, having no bus stops in a radius of 400 meters from our case study street. So that also shows uh, inequality of access to public transport supporting what they said already. Finally, and highlighting what Asil already mentioned, we also advocate for a more user-centered approach to planning and design, I think also supporting uh, the previous group. Um, as, as Asil mentioned, we also looked into what happened during COVID-19 and COVID-19 curfew in Kuwait. This is, these are photos from last year. Uh, with cars parked at home, people occupied the streets and they walked and exercised in public space. Uh, hi this highlighted the relevance of our user-centered investigation and the need for a different concept of public space. One that includes streets, not only parks, not only squares, not only open uh, areas and large areas, but also streets where people need to walk. And one that includes, uh, that prioritize people's movement. Uh, only with user-centered tools, we can fully understand the challenges and opportunities facing Kuwait's residential neighborhoods. And just to finalize, and in summary, this investigation tried to demonstrate that Kuwait should, and I think it's important to start now, support more sustainable methods of urban planning. They should prioritize pedestrian infrastructure and invest in public space. As the current car-centric development has and will con continue to have adverse effects on individual health and the environment. So these findings, as Asil mentioned before, are explored in more detail in our report available in the LSE Middle East Center website. Thank you. Fantastic, thank you so much. Um, now I'm going to turn over to uh, Sharifa Shafan, who is a consultant on this project. Thank you, Courtney. Um, hello, everyone. Um, so thank you, Alex and Asil and Adil and Dream for your presentations. And I just want to kind of conclude by saying that it's very important that we're having these two presentations done um, together because it just highlights the importance of thinking of urbanization holistically. And um, interesting to note that both these two projects are um, were uh, spun off from um, the first project, which was resource urbanisms, which um, Alexander Gomesh, Adi Mohammed, and me with other researchers uh, worked on LSE cities prior to that. And it was the basis, I mean, both presentations used like the, the, the large uh, macro 
maps and um, and what both projects did then dug into different aspects of the findings of the um, of resource urbanism and looked at well how does it really affect people um, and again you probably noticed that both presentations today were kind of speaking you know about the same things like cream showed the um, accessibility to bus stops with those um, red uh, bar charts two kilometers plus I think um, in some areas uh, Alex showed the radius and the difference between Cordoba um, and Salmia and access to bus stops and of course um, you cannot if, if, if you're going to rely on public transport then in order for you to reach your bus stop um, you have to use public space so unless the public space is up to a certain standard of safety Reem spoke a lot about safety for women and um, I would also I'd like to add safety for children, safety for everyone really uh, at different levels. So if you're walking and the sidewalk is, is broken and you trip and fall, that's also not very safe. So these are the kinds of things that I think need to be thought about um, together in order to, to improve um, urbanization in general in Kuwait. Um, I also wanna comment on, on the point that Alex made where in our research, we kind of um, demystified this idea of, of the weather and how in Kuwait, the, uh, many policymakers, as well as a lot of people um, in the public mention how the heat is really a barrier to improvements um, of public space. But in reality, as Alex had shown, public space use in, in different um, weather conditions hasn't really changed. Uh, those of you familiar with London know that if the sun is out, everybody is in the park, everybody is in the streets and cafes and what have you. In Kuwait, this this huge shift we, doesn't really happen. Of course, you know, a little bit it does, but in our research, we showed that it's not a big shift. And um, however, I think COVID-19 has shown that there is a shift in culture and because people all of a sudden realize that um, they're in lockdown, they don't have, because in Kuwait, we couldn't drive most of the time, but we were allowed to walk. So all of a sudden the streets kind of became alive. And even though we had two lockdowns, um, one last May and another one this May and April, and sorry to lose track, but I mean, twice, and both of them were in the hot weather. Um, and it's interesting to see how people really, really were like, um, Alex showed a few pictures just now and people really embraced, you know, walking the streets, the neighborhoods really became alive and people kind of just intuitively found the paths that were more shaded, the paths that were more uh, next to more greenery where there were, uh, it was less hot, even by having the cars parked because the cars, we don't realize it, but they generate a lot of heat. So if you're passing, if you're walking a parking lot, you really feel the heat radiating out of the cars, similarly, similarly the asphalt. So, I mean, I think these are things that many, people today are speaking about and are appreciating the, the more simpler things that, that we experienced in COVID. And um, I think, again, just to conclude, Alex talked about these three pillars of urban design, urban planning and culture. 
And what I see as a positive thing today is the culture is realizing that, you know, we are changing and we are appreciating, you know, just being in our neighborhoods and walking around and, and I'm positive, hopefully for um, the future that things will change for the better. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the presentations. And it's it's striking how, how interdependent everything is. I mean, you're dependent on cars and then cars crowd public space and then it make, makes walkability more difficult and, and everything kind of snowballs off of that. So I think these projects work really well together. Um, before turning to the Q&A, um, and I encourage people to, to type their questions there. I wanted to ask um, a couple of questions about kind of policy responses potentially. Um, and I see in this chat, someone asked whether some of these findings will be kind of passed on to the Kuwaiti government, whether there'll be kind of some type of advice given. But on the first project, I was wondering, I mean, thinking about the gendered aspect of public transport and, and you know, discomfort in public transport situations. I, I've noticed, I mean, in, in a place like Dubai on the Metro, and there is a space for women only. You also have the option of using um, taxis driven by women. And I don't know whether there's any discussion in Kuwait about these types of measures uh, just to help women feel a little bit more comfortable on public transport and even, even in taxis, to be honest, um, because I think it, it did help a lot in, in Dubai, at least. Um, and I think the, the other question I was wondering for the, the other group about public space, I mean, I do think it's striking to see how much, I mean, there has been investment in places like Shahid Park, which is this massive uh, development that is, is, has been really popular in terms of a public space and shows that people will use a public space when it's hot, if it's, you know, beautiful and well-kept in their cafes and everything else. And I wonder, I mean, is, is something like that useful though, because people, a lot of people have to drive to it. And so there's the aspect of parking still. And so would it be more useful instead of funding these large park projects to have kind of individual ones in, in separate neighborhoods? Um, so I don't know who wants to start. I guess I can start with the, the first group about kind of how yeah, to- I I, I'm really glad you brought that up. And something that I really enjoyed about the focus groups is a lot of the participants were not shy about policy recommendations. They were very vocal about like very, um, very cool, like, very like efficient ideas that I think if applied would actually improve the public transport situation. And so one of them is what you said. So a lot of them actually brought up the Dubai situation. And they said, in order for people to start to use public transportation, how can we uh, rather than fight against the culture, like, like Sharif is saying, it is progressing and people are opening up, but there is, um, that's not going to create like a mass kind of uh, influx of users unless we start doing things like having maybe a family section, maybe like a male, similar to what we do in like cinemas or something. Uh, another thing that people talked about was having actual bus lanes because Right now, it's not actually more efficient to take a bus. You actually take way longer to go anywhere. And so if there's actually incentive to uh, get somewhere faster by using a bus, that would also help usage. And also um, having more compact development. Like I think the thing with Kuwait is uh, we often think in terms of master plans, right? Like, okay, we have to do a huge overhaul when in reality, uh, we could focus on, let's say, a transport solution for one specific area. Like if we looked at a very industrial area and then we just decided to create one solution there, I don't know, like a tram or uh, something, bike lanes, et cetera, then perhaps uh, we can use that to model off and apply in other parts of Kuwait rather than 
feeling like we have to commit to changing entire Kuwait, which which discourages um, policymakers, I think. So yeah, that, those are some ideas. Great. Adil, uh, Adil, do you have anything to add to that? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I would uh, like to add two points here. First is that uh, from the uh, field visits in Kuwait and from the discussions with the government officials, uh, we experienced two significant uh, factors which basically hinder the development of an efficient transport system in Kuwait, which is basically because they think probably that the public transport is for workers. It's basically not for Kuwaiti population. Kuwaiti population will drive by car. So in this, this mindset basically excludes Kuwaiti population from the transport infrastructure system and constrains them to the car. When public transport system is built for everyone, then it will be more uh, easier for the, like Kuwaiti car uh, using population to use it. And similarly, the second uh, mindset from the workshop we had was that, well, we need to build more roads because there is so much congestion. So we need to build more overpass and fly, uh, underpasses on the existing highways because of the traffic bottlenecks. So uh, this mindset, because we, we know from like different studies across the world that the roads basically induced for the traffic, they don't solve the uh, transportation issues. So this mindset probably needs to change more towards public transport oriented development and maybe at least bring the public transport solutions at par with the current policy of car based and road uh, based uh, mobility in Kuwait metropolitan because with the population growth, uh, this, this is going to increase, it's not going to like stay here, the problem will uh, like increase with time. And we have like similar uh, experiences, for example, from Dubai and other similar contexts that public transport, when it is more accessible for everyone, socially and culturally, people would use it. And, and thirdly, the, the climate myth was also, uh, I experienced during our workshops as well. People say, well, it's so hot. Who will uh, like ride a bicycle or who will go to the bus? But the research by uh, Alex and Asid is clear evidence that basically a good weather doesn't change the situation. So there needs to be a, like a shift towards a, a approach towards public transport base and place oriented uh, like lifestyle and spatial development. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And, and just to add on that, I think we need to really meet users where they're at. Like we have to design policy in a way that they're not having to do all the work of reaching us and our standards as planners, as people who regularly are, are, are like enthusiasts about public space and public transport. We have to meet people where they're at so that they're actually feel like, oh, this is actually a better decision for me than, than, um, than taking a car. And, and there, I do want to highlight, there's a really uh, cool social initiative in Kuwait, Kuwait Commute, that is trying to be, change the culture in Kuwait and trying to build this kind of awareness of like, okay, what, what would it be like if we actually started to take buses? Um, so yeah, I look up, definitely look up Kuwait Commute by, by Jasen Al-Awali. I know it's a fantastic initiative and it's, it's striking to look at a place like London where 
no one would it would choose to, or most people would choose not to to use a car because the public transport system is so vast. And I think it's also striking looking at the two presentations that you have on the one hand, some of the I think it was the middle and high income women uh, saying, you know, we can't foreign women can't get driver's licenses. So, and yet at the same time, you have too many cars on the street. So it's kind of this idea of supply and demand for kind of public vehicles or private vehicles as well. Um, but I guess I wanted to turn to uh, the other project about uh, public space and, and solutions like Shahid Park. I don't know who wants to start. Um, I can go ahead and then I'll, uh, I'll Alex and Shadif can, can continue. But I think uh, Shahid Park is a fantastic project, it's, but it's a destination uh, place. You have to go there to for it uh, to work. So it's not unlike any other destination point, but it's a park. So that works alongside what we're advocating for, which is really public space. Uh, uh, things that would work in a neighborhood, uh, you're able to move and to uh, to create cultural shift. You need to be able to access that in a much uh, in a in a in a better way. And I think getting into a car and going over to Shahid Park is really doesn't develop that kind of cultural or doesn't sustain that cultural shift, and it's really unsustainable in that sense. So the reason why we looked at neighborhoods that fit particular prototypes already in Kuwait, the Salmi and Qurtuba, is we're trying to say this, the, the potential is there. We have also the, we have also the, 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 the standards building codes and building standards that might allow for that potential to, to, to work. But there is a, there's a, there's a culture that we need to push against. And that I think is the, the reason why we, we took on a project like that. And there is this kind of, it resonates. We, everyone talks about, uh, we are looking for better uh, public space within our neighborhoods, but then there is also that uh, part of, you know, whoever's living in those spaces that are, that doesn't really work for that, uh, to ameliorate that, that public space. For example, having a lot of cars that are parked outside in the setbacks that deter people from taking, uh, from walking on the sidewalk, that annexation, which is, which happens across all of the neighborhoods. Uh, and so it, it's become quite that quality of life that you would like to see in a neighborhood is really, really missing. And I think we can have a Shahid Park but we need to also complement that with a completely uh, different set of uh, policies that will will push against that kind of behavior that takes over the streets uh, and public space within the neighborhoods. So that that I think is uh, my my uh, response to that comment. And I'll leave that to Alex and Sharifa to continue. Alex, you want to go ahead? Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so basically, um, just Shahid Park, for those who are not familiar, it's, it was developed a few years ago, um, a few years before COVID, and um, it's, it's on top of a parking lot, and it's, um, it's closer to Kuwait City, and I believe that it created a cultural shift. So, the, the activities that were happening in Shahid Park were previously not seen um, and other parks around around the country before. So um, there were cultural activities, art shows, um, yoga classes, running, um, even 
even women were, are more comfortable now to go jogging and not feel as threatened or as exposed as if they were like running in their neighborhoods or something like that. So um, for me, it's not one or the other. Like as you said, I think having, it's like saying Central Park or New York pocket parks. It's, it's kind of, you need them both. So um, I feel that Shahid Park definitely fulfills an important role where you can have, you know, large events, you can have, um, it's, it's like attracting people from different parts of the city, whereas your local parks are kind of more for the local neighborhoods. So this is where you would invest, not just in the park, but in the neighborhood itself. So how do you access your local park? Um, so if, if I'm a mother with with a kid on a stroller, I should be able to walk, you know, um, 500 meters, one kilometer to, to my neighborhood park and not feel that I'm having to go through hurdles. And also um, safety um, from cars and what have you. So I think they're both really important, but need to be kind of addressed differently. Um, well, thank you, Asil and Jennifer. I just want to add uh, a few things that came to my mind. So one is, um, from my understanding of a few neighborhoods that I know, a lot of the neighborhoods in Kuwait already have small parks. Uh, and what we try to demonstrate with this uh, research is that, you know, because you don't have a cafe, because you don't have public toilets, because you don't have shading, a lot of the benches in most of the parks uh, are under the sun rather than under the tree, for example. That's a simple fix in a way, picking up on the deals, a seals of simple fixes. Uh, but also a lot of the um, a lot of the comments that we had from the survey are we need spaces to play and we need spaces to do sports. So if you can adapt some of these smaller parks and also some of the plots that are, you know, empty plots like we showed in Cortuba and transform them into spaces that people can use and giving them conditions to be used. I think a lot of the people like Sarifa was saying, you know, we'll go to Shade Park anyway, but these small parts, and some people call it pocket parts, will be uh, more used. But I think another issue here that we can't forget is, and linking to Reem's idea, is a lot of the our research in Reem's uh, research with um, Adil is that a lot of public space is used by non-Kuwaitis. And non-Kuwaitis, like Asil, um, Reem said, uh, they can't afford to travel probably to uh, to Shahid Park or other parts in the center. So promoting also spaces in the neighborhood that can be still used by non-Kuwaitis that are inclusive to non-Kuwaitis because we saw that non-Kuwaitis are using a lot of this public space. It's their gathering spaces. We could see uh, cleaners gathering for lunch and they are sitting on trees. Why can't we allow them to have a proper space to sit and tables? So I think this, this idea of spatial distribution, improving the, the parks that already exist, maybe creating one or two pocket parks, but also creating spaces that are inclusive to Kuwaitis and non-Kuwaitis, because the more you use, the more people you have there, probably you feel less unsafe. A lot of the times you feel unsafe because there's only a couple of men uh, and you're the only woman, but if you have 20 women, <laughs> maybe you won't feel that unsafe. So I think inclusivity uh, plays a, uh, a very important role in also in Kuwait due to the amount of expats in, in the city. 
I just I just wanted to add one thing uh, that following up what Alex was just saying about uh, inclusivity uh, and equity, really, we, we can't forget the history of Shahid Park. Shahid Park was not what it is uh, today. It was uh, something that was uh, uh, done by PAF, uh, Public Authority for Agriculture and Fisheries. And it was just like any other neighborhood park, but much larger. And it catered for a large non-Kuwaiti population that I think uh, the current Shahid Park, as lovely as it is, has uh, pushed back a lot of those non-Kuwaitis from coming into that space because it also has a lot of rules uh, that you can't, for example, you can't uh, picnic, you can't uh, bring in animals, uh, and a lot of rules that uh, that uh, are inhibitive, uh, I would say. And so we have to also uh, be very aware of, yes, it's a public space, and yes, it's designed as such, but what kind of, whatever, what, what design it took in its final, uh, you know, plan, it led to a particular exclusion of a, uh, of a demographic in Kuwait. And so we have to also say that. And, I, and I'm looking at, uh, uh, I think, Jason's comment in the, in the chat box, and it says there's a, there's a gate that's always closed from, uh, the, uh, that's across of Bnedilgar, uh, um, so that bridge. And Nedelgar, we have to also uh, note that is uh, it's a it's a neighborhood that has a lot of non-Kuwaiti population there. So that's also uh, an, an accessibility that is very conscious. Uh, so we have to also be aware of that as well. Fantastic, thank you. And sorry, my internet uh, cut out momentarily, but I I believe I've. I've... Most of most of what was said, and I think what's been striking since I've been back in in suburban uh, America is to see how much these same issues we have here, uh, as in Kuwait. I mean, I found myself driving to the biggest public park here, getting there, realizing there was no parking, and then you know, kind of driving around so that then I could walk. And it's um, so I think oftentimes we we single out the Gulf um, as being you know, worse off in in some senses with this this issue of public space, but it's really. Uh, not the case, uh, I can confirm. So uh, there's a couple of questions in the Q&A that I'll just, um, I'll group them all together and then whoever wants to um, to, to hop in. Um, the first is, uh, it says, it is often heard from Middle Eastern cities that the critical intersection of urbanization and economic development often leaves behind the traditional purpose of public space, which is of course making social connections. So do you often realize this phenomenon in Kuwait? And I think we've talked about this a little bit, but we can elaborate on that. And then just um, because we don't have a ton of time, I'll, I'll list the other two questions. Um, one is, can we expect policymakers to make positive changes when there is fragmented agency within public transportation and urban space design governmental circles? Um, and I think the last question is somewhat related to this, um, talking about how several foreign architecture and design companies are advising uh, the Kuwaiti municipality on urban master planning. So you have the UK-based BDP, a lot of a lot of foreign entities involved in, in these plans. So is there any evidence that they're making suggestions on better public space provision? Has anyone talked to them? Um, so I guess one question about kind of the, the shift in the use of, of the public space in general, and then another on what policies are, makers are doing and the role that, uh, that foreign firms in particular have on urban master plans. Um, so is there anyone who, who in yeah. particular wants to start? Okay, Reem, go ahead. Um, I'm, I'm, I really like that first question, particularly in terms of um, the intersection of urbanization and economic development. Because so Kuwait, so I, I live in between Berlin and Kuwait and it's incredibly crazy how different my experience of public spaces. Because here in Kuwait, I feel like I can't do anything, right? Without consuming something, without 
buying something. So even um, like uh, Asil said, like going to Shahid Park um, for me is not that pleasant of an experience because it feels like a destination. It feels like I'm going to have to think a bit about what I'm wearing, um, how I'm going to be spending money, parking, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I can't sit down on the grass there. Multiple times I've tried and people come up to you. So it's not really public space. Um, on the other hand, uh, I live in Qartoba actually, which is the place that was studying. And there's a park uh, that I often go to and it's crazy how neglected it is. And so uh, even now with, with COVID, you would think with the um, lockdown and everything, they would have opened it up. There's literally a wire that is like preventing people from going inside. I don't understand why it's there. And then there's a water fountain inside that has been disconnected. And I don't know if it's meant to disincentivize a lot of the construction workers that tend to gather around there um, because frankly, there is always like kind of racism involved in all of this and weird exclusion. Um, and so like Essie said, like what does it mean when our economic development is so uh, coincided with this exclusion of a population that doesn't necessarily have the money or want to spend the money on just simply accessing public space. And so as someone who has experienced the kind of quality of life of just like a neighborhood feel, it's really hard for me to adapt to the Kuwaiti setting in which uh, there's just a massive barrier towards just normal access to walking around. Like even if I try to jog in the neighborhood, I have to dodge cars, I have to dodge um, huge bushes and it's just not designed for that. And so there needs to be more consciousness at the policy level where they actually begin to prioritize that and not just build luxury parks on the middle of town displacing other parks but actually making a concerted effort to understand public space as something that is genuinely public and for everyone alex go ahead um, I think picking up on, on that same question, I think one uh, that depends on what you mean about economic development uh, and urbanization. What I feel is that somehow this type of development, and if we think about costs, uh, it, it may provide some benefits, but it also has costs in terms of health and the environment, and these are quite strong. Uh, and we all talk about climate change, etc. But it, it's not only the, the world changing, but also uh, reflecting locally on uh, asthma and diabetes, for example, in Kuwait. So we, I have to think that we have to think that there are costs that are economic costs to the country or to the city that come from particular type of development uh, that go beyond the, the social costs of not meeting your neighborhood. The other one is, uh, I think there's a there's a research at LSE Cities, of course, it's applied to streets in, in the UK, but this research showed that streets and high streets have a lot of profit. They provide a lot of profit. They're social, but also economic profit to particular neighborhoods. So I think that somehow uh, rethinking the way Kuwait is urbanizing can bring benefits, uh, economic uh, economic benefits to to the country, to the city. But, you know, if we continue like this, it will bring more costs than benefits, I think, uh, mid and longer term. So I think that's something that I wanted to add to, to that. Sharifa? Uh, thank you. 
I would also like to add that um, we need to, to remember that Kuwait is a hyper-welfare city. So prior to the discovery of oil, the community really depended on one another for their livelihoods. Um, so for example, uh, Reem talked about the dependence on, on um, live-in housekeepers, but, but prior to oil discovery, of course, um, people really depended on each other and um, usually men would travel for months on end to trade with um, other countries like India or to Pearl Drive and stuff. And the women really um, had to raise the children together. Um, also the maintenance of the, the streets, the city and um, uh, cleaning, water and everything really um, depended on the community. However, with the discovery of oil, the state kind of replaced this role. So no longer do you rely on your neighbor for, for your existence and your um, survival. Now you really depend, you depend on the state. And we see this with the subsidy, the housing provision, the, the lack of um, taxes and what have you. So, so I think this really plays uh, as a significant factor in the relationship between citizens and their, and the social, their social interactions with each other. And I think Farah and Lakib's book, Kuwait Transformed, really traces that quite well in terms of the, the change after oil, oil wealth came in. Um, Asil, did you want to add? I just wanted to follow up, uh, uh, answer, respond to the question about the policies and the master plan, uh, which I think was a, one of the questions that you asked, Courtney. Uh, the, there is a, the new, uh, the KMP4, Quit Master Plan 4, uh, is actually something that looks into pedestrian, pedestrianization of streets. It looks at zoning in a way that uh, builds what uh, Alex was just talking about, uh, high streets and so on, looking at where the clusters are and building uh, public infrastructure around them. So there is a, a, a great shift uh, in, the, in the fourth master plan. Uh, having said that, I think Reem also mentioned this in her in her presentation. There is a disconnect between this sort of macro scale of planning and what really needs to happen on the on the in the everyday life of your neighborhood as you walk out of this you know of your house and just use the streets. And I think that disconnect is really never. Uh, uh, tackled by by uh, planners, uh, state planners, I would say, because the, those are they're the ones who is re who are responsible. Particularly, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, public um, uh, public works department. So that that disconnect between our everyday lives and uh, the micro level is what needs to happen in parallel to that uh, large scale kind of planning because we can't go we can't get into that uh, the, these details that we talk about as far as how do we activate public how do we activate the street uh, in that level of planning that happens in the in the municipality uh, and it needs to happen we need to meet users needs uh, users are uh, people are brought in they're 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 asked to participate in particular points of the in the planning process but they're never they're never consulted beyond a particular uh, phase and and that disconnect also with the users of that space is also problematic because at the end of the day you're creating something that really doesn't meet need uh, and I think that's uh, something that we're trying to 
produce, and I think there's parallels in both Reem and Adil and our project uh, in the fact that we are targeting and we're speaking uh, and producing policies that are based on user needs. Thank you. No, it's a great point. Just a very short comment. I think picking up on what the seal was saying, we, we, we. I think it's important that QATs also become activists in a way, right? Because if if there's no opportunity from governance, if there's all, if there's this uh, fragmented agency, I think it, it. And if you if you don't if you don't get the opportunity to engage, I think there's there's the time now also with all that COVID showed to become, you know, activists, to have more, maybe more bottom-up initiatives. And I'm picking up on uh, Kuwait Commute that Reem mentioned, but also other initiatives linked to, to improvement of public space, to uh, walkability, cyclists, etc. I think it's, it's time to also, okay, this is not working. How can we make it work in a way? And Adil, do you have anything to add? Or anyone else has anything else? Sorry, Adil? Oh, no. Yeah, no it, it has been quite well. Probably would like to add something, Can you hear? Uh, yeah, that's better. There, there okay, sorry, sorry about that. I think Reem has a point here to uh, make. I think yeah, what Alex and Asil have said is pretty much what what the concept is about for for a better uh, creating a better society into it. Yeah, and and going off of that, like something I sometimes like fantasize about when I'm like jogging as a young woman, and it's really in my neighborhood here in Qartaba and feeling kind of washed or awkward is like, what would it look like if uh, just a bunch of women started doing this? Like if we just started occupying more spaces, if we started um, de like demanding the space that we want by just occupying it. And so like the big harassment, anti-harassment movement that's taking place in Kuwait, it's like so many women started speaking up about their experiences. And I'm like, okay, how do we take that to the public level, the public space? How can we begin to occupy it? And in a way that can start to challenge the paradigms. Cause it's often often the case that we don't do it because it's not normal or we're, we don't wanna be like the ones like spearheading the change um, because we're the ones that take the fall. But if we do it in mass, cause there, if, if there are like um, Alex said, like more of this kind of activism and it's not necessarily this kind of, um, it doesn't have to be your lifestyle, just literally going on the street and taking more walks um I think COVID really helped with that and like even just I, I think about that when I'm walking I'm like okay like it feels really awkward but somebody has to start you know and then if more and more people do this then it's going to start changing changing the paradigms I just wanted to say something funny because uh, uh there's in Cortuba there were some furniture old furniture dropped in this uh, empty plot and once in a conversation with Sharifa, I'm sure she will remember, we were like, why why don't we move one of these sofas to under a, a tree and see if people can start using it in a way? Uh, and I think it's kind of these small things also can help, you know, like small uh, acts of um, change uh, that, you know, who knows lead to bigger acts of change. 
Yeah, and in the chat, someone, uh, someone just said a sofa was placed at a at a bus stop. So I mean, people are are making changes, and and it's good to know also that the the government's latest master plan is is a bit different, and so hopefully we'll take into account the what's happening on the ground, which I think is I think there is a shift, and and we've seen it with COVID, and, and even before that, I'd argue as well. Um, but are there any other last words from panelists before we close? All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation, and I think an important conversation moving forward. And speaking of that, um, on June 7th, um, there will be another research seminar hosted by LSC Cities um, with, I believe, Alex, Cecil, Sharifa, um, speaking about games and participatory tools in urban research and design. And uh, Asil had mentioned the, the card game that uh, they've been working on, basically in terms of nudges towards uh, different use of public space. And so I think it'll be really interesting uh, output from that project and, and an interesting way to, to teach people how to use public space differently and to, to think about it differently. So uh, that's on Monday, June 7th from 5 to 6. Um, uh, British time. So uh, hopefully everyone can join us for that as well. But thank you so much um, to everyone for, for coming and, uh, and we look forward to hearing more from the projects moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for organizing and amazing research. Really, really nice to deal. Thank you for supporting the research. Thank you. Thanks, Courtney. Bye.